Today's Old Testament reading text is Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 30. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your, you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful, and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field, so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. New Testament reading is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. God gave, I'm sorry, God gave him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, John and Nancy. So my, my question this morning to open us up is what comes to mind for you when you see uh, this symbol, the symbol of the cross? Think for a moment. What comes to your mind when you see that symbol? Now, what if you had to sum that up in one word? What would be one word that comes to mind when you see the cross? Suffering, grace, victory, mercy, forgiveness, salvation, atonement, love. I don't know what your word was. Those are all great words. But based on our teaching text today, I wonder if Paul would sum these all up in one word, 
reconciliation. This is such a powerful word. And for Paul, it's a mark of being new creation. It's a mark of a new community. We're in this series entitled All Things New, Following Jesus as Perpetual Beginners. And one of the ways that we're made new is that we are reconciled to God. The Greek word that Paul uses for reconciliation is katalage, which essentially means to exchange enmity, wrath, and war with friendship, with love, with peace. And so by the cross, Jesus has exchanged our enmity and war with God for friendship, love, and peace. And at that, I hope we can all say amen. And according to Paul, the cross is an instrument of reconciliation. And so its image to us ought to be a symbol of reconciliation, of exchanging war with peace, of friendship made possible with God. Unfortunately, the way... Christians have used this symbol through different times in history. Uh, That hasn't always been what it stood for. That hasn't always been what it stood for. In 1119, there was a military order founded on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they existed for nearly two centuries. You might know the name. They were called the Templar Knights. They were the most skilled fighters in the Crusades. And their symbol was a red cross. They were tasked, many with shedding blood in Jesus' name, and they were an official charity of the Roman Catholic Church, the most popular one to give to. What does this symbol mean to you? Hundreds of years later, after the Templar Knights, some Scottish clanmen initiated something called the Cron Terra, with a similarly militaristic use. They had a fiery cross that was used as a declaration of war. It's on the, the sort of front of the boat there, the person's holding it. But often it would be put atop a hill, um, because once you light the cross on fire and it's real big, people can see it. And they know, let's rally. Let's rally our clansmen together to fight. I wonder, what does this symbol mean to you? A couple hundred years later, this same symbol would be picked up by the Ku Klux Klan. And what makes it all the more tragic is that it had uh, intrinsically... Christian understanding of using it. Uh, Some of the history of the Ku Klux Klan is interesting. So on Christmas Eve, 1865, in Pulaski, Tennessee, there were six young ex-Confederate officers, and they were essentially looking for something to occupy their time. So they got together to form a club, which eventually becomes tasked with fighting reconstruction in the South post-Civil War, integration, reconstruction. 
they decide to start fighting it. And so they go about using violence to terrorize and essentially murder not just black people, but those who support them, uh, white shopkeepers who might hire a black employee. Well, by 1869, just four years later, the leader, Nathan Forrest of the Ku Klux Klan, he decides this organization needs to be disbanded. Just four years later, he said, you know what? Um, all the really people of, of integrity, so to say, are, are leaving the group, and we just have a bunch of rabble-rousers. This thing is, is no good. Let's end it. So 1869, just four years later, it's done. It's done. That's it. Four years. And at that point, there was nothing particularly religious about the group. They didn't burn crosses either in that first iteration. But then in 1915, there's an itinerant Methodist preacher named William Joseph Simmons. And after seeing a film that portrays the Ku Klux Klan in a positive light, The Birth of a Nation, he decides, you know what? This was, a, this was men of valor. This is what our country needs. So on the night before Thanksgiving in 1915, 1915 Simmons, he took 15 or so of his friends to the top of Stone Mountain near Atlanta, Georgia, and he built an altar up on the mountain. And on the altar, he placed an American flag, he placed a Bible, and he placed a sword that was still in its sheath. There, he set fire to a wooden cross. He muttered a few sayings, a few incantations about how this was going to be a practical fraternity among men. And he declared himself, the, the titles are so interesting, the Imperial Wizard of the Invisible Empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And within four years, there were thousands of people. Just a few, a few thousand, I shouldn't say thousands, just a few. Okay, and he thought, this thing is a lot bigger. It's a lot bigger than this. So he hired uh, a press agent named Edward Clark Young. And Young helped them. Young, he set forth the Klan's goal in terms of Christian morality versus sin. So he started giving press about how this is how you can be a good Christian. And what Young did is he said, the enemies of America, which the Klan would proclaim, they were booze, loose women, Jews, Negroes, Roman Catholics, and anybody else who was not a native-born Protestant Anglo-Saxon. And a lot of churches, particularly in the South, they really bought into this. They acclaimed the Klan's program. A lot of Methodist and Baptist pastors, they lent the KKK massive support. And not long after that, not long after that press agent helped to further Christianize the KKK, did it blossom into some four million members. And they actually have as their emblem a fiery cross. There apparently isn't any contradiction between the cross, an instrument of suffering that brings about our reconciliation with God, and its use as a symbol for terror 
and torture of anyone who's not like them. So I wonder, what does this symbol mean to you? I wish it ended there, but then, less than two years ago, our capital was stormed by an insurgence that was largely motivated by a distorted, heretical view of Christianity. The cross was one of the symbols on display alongside the guillotine and the noose. So I have to ask, is the cross a symbol of war or peace? Is it a symbol of enmity and division or friendship and love? Does the cross bring us together or does it separate us apart? Is the cross a symbol of retribution or restoration? Whether you have a physical Bible or if you use your phone, it might be helpful if we jump into our text now. So if you'd turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Today I'm going to do my best to explore this passage with special attention to the biblical notion of reconciliation. And we'll make three stops along the way with classic preacher alliteration. we got the problem, the promise, and the partnership. Okay, here we go. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. So already, stop one. We got the problem. Humankind, of which I'm a member, loves living for itself. And according to verse 15, this is a problem for which Christ had to die. Traditionally, we call this sin. You hear the word sin, right? One of the ways that the great Christian thinker Augustine understood sin was as humanity curved in on itself. Humanity curled or curved in on itself. I wonder if you've heard this understanding of sin before. It's a, it's a theological concept, and like all good theological concepts, it has a Latin phrase attached to it. So this is humanity curved in on itself in Latin, homo incurvatus in se. Man curved in on himself. Here's a little painting that sort of much more. I, I keep doing this. I can't really curve in all the way, but there you see it. Just curved inward. Inward. For Augustine, this is both uh, pride and the idea of misplaced love. He said, as you may have heard, pride is the beginning of sin. Because in pride, there's a turning away from God towards the self. 
Rather than remain in obedience to the Creator, we've all chosen the prideful path of finding our own way, of defining, defining for ourselves what is actually good and how to go about getting it. But it's not just pride, it's also misplaced love. We're created by God to love God supremely. Yet in sin, we've turned inward, rejecting God and giving our greatest adoration to the almighty self. You've heard the word wicked, right? It sounds like such a, I don't know, to me it sounds scary. It's like a crazy intense word, wicked. We don't use it that often, except for, you know, for a Broadway play. But one way to think about that word is, is the first four letters of it like a wick, like the wick of a candle. And so to be wicked, if, if something is meant to be sort of straight, a direct line between humanity and God, what does a wick do once you burn it? It starts, again, curling in on itself. That which, end, you know, your end is meant to be God has now come back to you. Something that was meant to point upwards towards God begins curling in on itself like a burnt wick. And that's wicked. There's another image by The New Yorker. This was a cover of The New Yorker, and I love it so much. Uh, the smartphone becomes a tool for furthering our own inward turn. Right, we're all looking down, and so now doctors diagnose us with text neck. Right? It's like a physical, real thing. Without God, this is human nature. And now we just have tools to help it along. And so because of sin, when not intentionally resisting it, I'm turned or curved in on myself rather than outwards towards God and others. When we become turned within ourselves, it's not that we don't need others. In fact, we start looking towards others for validation. We start using others. Because we're egocentric creatures, we naturally view and approach the world through the lens of the self, of the self. And so our interactions with others become about validating the self. Validating the self. And so continually asking this question when we're thinking about other people, whatever it might be for you, it could be, am I loved? Do other people love me? Am I enough? Am I enough? Do other people think that I am enough? Do they think that I have enough? That I'm doing well enough? Am I important? Do other people think I'm important? Am I safe? Will other people help make me safe? And this is a natural temptation within all of us so that relationships actually just become about us, just about the self. And the spiritual journey is one of turning outward towards others, towards God. It's not to say your inward life doesn't matter, but it's one of opening up that inward life towards others. When we do this, when we turn towards God and others, we can both love 
and actually experience and receive love properly. But humanity curved in on itself ruptures and severs relationships. It's in this state that we create hierarchy because we need to define ourselves somehow. We need some type of identity. So we create hierarchy and biases against one another based on external markers, like skin color, gender, ethnicity, language, and for the grumpiest of us, culture and even fashion. Why? Because in this fragile state, without an identity rooted in God, we have to define ourselves based on others. Who am I in relation to you? Define ourselves based on the groups we get to be a part of. And insidiously, we define ourselves against who we exclude from those groups. And one of the things that reconciliation with God does is it begins to address that problem. Look at the next verse. We read 14 and 15. Verse 16. Already. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So because of the atoning work of Christ's death and resurrection, we can start uncurling can start looking up, beginning to actually see others and not even see them from a worldly point of view. In the kingdom of God, then, worldly, external markers like skin color, gender, ethnicity, language, culture, and fashion begin to lose their ability to divide us. It doesn't mean they don't matter or exist, right? We're not colorblind, But they don't have to define us. We don't need to form our identity around who's in and who's out. We can start uncurling and beginning again to actually see others. God is that uh, spiritual chiropractor who begins putting us in alignment first with himself and then with others. So I hope you can hear how we're slowly moving from the problem to the promise. And then Paul makes the promise crystal clear. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old's gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. This is good news. Gospel. Good news. In Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. See, the problem when we're curved in on ourselves It's all-encompassing. It ruins everything. It ruins our relationship with ourself. 
causes a whole slew of mental health issues. It ruins our relationships with other people. We begin using them. It ruins our relationship with the earth. We begin using that. It's all-encompassing. It affects all of our relationships. And the good news is that the gospel is all-encompassing. Salvation touches everything. God is reconciling the world. That's an expansive term to himself in Christ. In fact, look at how Paul says this to another community in Colossians. This is chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Come on. To reconcile to himself all things, all things new. This is the promise. That in and through Christ, God is making peace. He's bringing reconciliation to all things. That is expansive. That is cosmic, all-encompassing reconciliation. Amen and amen. Now, if you've gathered with us at all the last two Sundays, whether you've been here or you've been listening online, you know there's this strange theme that keeps popping up when I talk about newness in Paul's epistles. Circumcision. And it's here again. I'm not seeking out these verses on circumcision. They're just there. Okay, this time. This is in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. This is in chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the image of reconciliation. And what a beautiful truth. Your relationship with God is being reconciled. And then Paul continues, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them, the Jews and the Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Do you see the powerful way that Paul makes it crystal clear that Christ's work on the cross has profound reconciling effects both between humanity and God, we're made right with God, and between people groups. The Jew and the Gentile are now one new humanity in Christ. 
Look, Paul is never trying to uh, obliterate our differences. He doesn't say the Jew is obliterated or the Gentile is obliterated. He says the dividing wall of hostility is. So I really don't think Paul's plan, God's plan, is for all of us to look and dress exactly alike, to sort of find the perfect ethnicities to reproduce with so that we become just one, the exact same skin tone, right? Exact same language all across the world. But he wants it to be crystal clear that the walls we've set up to divide ourselves, to identify who we are, who's in, who's out on external markers, these walls have been obliterated. Our differences haven't been obliterated, but the wall has. Which means in Christ, we can actually see difference as beauty. Difference can be exciting rather than frightening. We learn to be curious and compassionate towards those who are at first strange, strangers to us. Because of our reconciliation to God, we can become ministers of reconciliation. We can be the ones who bring difference together on equal ground. And that is new creation. That is peculiar. That is strange. People will say, what in the world is that? That's something new. And friends, that's what God is up to in the world. That's the promise. But it doesn't end with just the promise. Continuing on in 2 Corinthians, back to our primary text... We're now back in verse 19, picking up in the second half of 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is about the partnership. Do you see how God is inviting us into the work of reconciliation? I must say that I've been guilty before of talking about reconciliation, getting essentially to the point before the partnership and saying, so let's pray for it. Because that's all we can do. How on earth is this kind of person going to be in the same room as this kind of person? I don't know. Let's just pray for it. But Paul is crystal clear that you are partners in the work. Not just through prayer. Not just through prayer. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. We're his ambassadors. He makes his appeal for reconciliation through us. He says that we are God's righteousness now. We show what God's right way, what the good and proper way of living looks like on earth. And get this. I ended it before the next verse because it's in the next chapter. This is the end of chapter 5. The first verse in chapter 6, which continues Paul's thought, says this. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you, 
not to receive God's grace in vain. And so there's the problem, the promise, and the partnership. We're invited in as God's co-workers. Do you think of yourself as a co-worker of God's? Maybe an employee, but an actual co-worker? We're participants. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We're God's co-workers. And here's the thing. It would be vanity to be reconciled with God and not practice reconciliation as a community. It'd be vain. And so because we are Christ's ambassadors, things like relational resentment and bitterness, very practical, one-on-one things like that, things much larger, racism, sexism, ableism, ethnocentric nationalism and environmental degradation, these all attack the very witness of a gospel that we have. And when the instrument of reconciliation, the cross, becomes a tactic for terror, it breaks the heart of God. Go ahead and show the next picture, Tim. When a group like this can gather around the communion table, that's what's in the center, under the banner, Jesus saves, it destroys any meaning of what salvation is. But, since the promise is God reconciling all things to himself, The invitation is that we are ministers of reconciling all things, all relationships. So this is what reconciliation is. You can put this slide up. It means spiritual reconciliation. We are at work bringing people, humanity, together with God in spiritual reconciliation. It means relational reconciliation, of individuals, a daughter and a father, a husband and a wife, an employee and a boss. Whatever those relationships are, I'm sure you have one that you know needs to be reconciled. It means racial and ethnic reconciliation. Asians and Hispanics, blacks and whites. It means cultural and political reconciliation. Native Americans and Western colonizers, modern-day immigrants and born and raised citizens, incarcerated and non-incarcerated. It even means creational or environmental reconciliation, people and the planet living in peace. All these relationships and more are being restored, reconciled in Christ. We get to participate. We have to participate. That's our ministry. It's the ministry of reconciliation. We're God's partners in this work, His co laborers. As the apartheid was brought to an end, and Nelson Mandela was eventually elected president of. Reunited South Africa. He sought to address 
the country's very contentious past by establishing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. People on both sides, the Afrikaners, the white nationalists, and the people who were even rising up as insurgents against the government, people on both sides were invited to share their stories as recipients of abuse or even as those who perpetuated and participated in abuse. And on both sides, uh, many were granted amnesty so that they would actually share honestly their stories. They were granted amnesty of their past crimes. And I think one of the most profound choices that Mandela makes in starting this Truth and, Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that uh, to chair this thing, to head this thing, he doesn't hire a lawyer. You might think a lawyer would make the most sense. We're talking about forgiving past crimes, bringing things together, litigate. He doesn't hire a politician. You might think, well, that makes sense. This is an act of the government. He hires a pastor. He hires a pastor to chair the commission, Desmond Tutu. Tutu wasn't a lawyer or a politician, but a pastor. And as such, he knew and said that the work of reconciliation is profoundly spiritual. It must be spiritual. But he says this about it. Forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones, is not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It's a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a community that experiences and brings Real healing, not superficial healing. And I've seen sermons on reconciliation and preach them myself as uh, essentially a way to sweep harm under the rug. It's too impractical to deal with this, so can't we just move on? Can't we just get along? God's made things okay, right? But Tutu says, you know, there is no peace without justice. There is no reconciliation without truth. And what that means for our community and for any relationship where you're hoping to see reconciliation come, uh, that means that you're going to need to tell and hear uncomfortable truth sometimes. You're going to need to hear and tell uncomfortable truth about your and our past. 
You're going to need to hear and tell uncomfortable truth about the way we've hurt or been hurt, offended or been offended, other people. We're going to need to hear and tell uncomfortable truth about the way that we are perhaps still perpetuating systems of harm or abuse or unhealth. But friends, this is simply a part of the ministry of reconciliation. It need not be scary. It's always, always, always worth it. Some of us, depending on our personalities and temperaments, we might be tempted to ignore the systems that we're a part of that perpetuate injustice. Right? We might not like that language of systemic racism. And so we're going to be tempted to ignore that. Don't ignore that. But others of us will be tempted to ignore the very personal ways that we've ignored the call of reconciliation. And perhaps by placing everything in categories of systemic abuse, we've avoided the fact that we are refusing to practice personal reconciliation with those we disagree with. So that's the other temptation. Everything is a system, and we ignore the ways that we're uh, refusing to forgive others. As we come to a close, what I want to do is actually just allow us to take a moment and reflect. To reflect on the ways that reconciliation may be needed in our own lives. I want to take a moment and think about the places of estrangement in your life. The places where relationships feel fractured. The places where reconciliation is needed. If you're comfortable, you can close your eyes. And what I want you to do is is see if God brings to mind a person, a people group, perhaps a system. As God brings someone or or something, some people to mind, will you even now think of one tangible step you can take towards reconciliation this week? One tangible step. Is it a book you can read? Is it a letter you can write someone? Is it setting aside some silence and time in prayer where you can actually first begin by being reconciled to God, by confessing, by seeking out the hope and possibility that only the Spirit will bring? I don't know what it is, but will you think of one tangible step that you can take towards reconciliation this week? And right now, Don't just take a mental note of it. That's good. But better yet, physically write it down. Open up your notes app and write it in there. Send 
a friend a text and just say, hey, God's doing this thing in my life. Listen, do not let the promptings of God go unbidden. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you have made a way for us to be reconciled with you. Lord, for those of us who feel estranged, even from you, would your spirit begin doing that work of drawing us into your presence? Would you show us the face of Christ as the one who brings us together with you? Lord, for those of us who perhaps... uh, a real fractured, a real unhealthy relationship has been brought to mind. Lord, I pray that any acts toward reconciliation would be prompted only by your spirit, not by guilt, um, not by some unhealthy compulsion for everyone to like me, but by a desire to be made whole and right by you. Lord, I pray for the very real division in our country. Even as we go about to the polls this Tuesday, Lord, would you make the church a peculiar place where these different people sit around the same table and their conversations are one of compassion and curiosity, not without losing conviction, but that really give a different image, a different taste to other people of what it can look like to be a community of difference. In Jesus' name, amen.